All right, good morning. I know this morning it is the fifth Sunday. Did you already make this announcement? No, it is the fifth Sunday, so normally we do not have children's ministry, but this Sunday we do. So, kindergarten through junior high, you are free. You can go and learn about Jesus over there. All right, just as a reminder, if you are new with us this morning, we do, typically we do children's ministry every other week. Um, it's very common for us to have kids among us in the service, and that's a very good thing. It's a very good thing. So it means that sometimes we have to be okay with some distractions every now and again, but again, we're grown folk. We can deal with that, right? All right. Uh, my name is Doug. I'm the campus pastor here at Parkview East, and it's a joy to be able to worship with you this morning. If you are new here, um, we want to welcome you. I'm glad that you are here with us. Um, this is a great opportunity, this series that we are in, for you to learn about us. We're walking through specifically what is the DNA of Parkview, who we are as a church. And so what we're trying to explore and, and really just lay our cards on the table and be very clear and upfront about what is important to us here at this church, the way by which we enjoy the way by which we pursue Jesus together in everyday life. That's really what the mission of our church is, what God has called us to. Um, we are in the business here at Parkview East of making disciples. And so over the course of the next couple of weeks, what we are walking through is what we are called traits of these disciples. What the DNA should be, the traits that should be evident in your life if you are a follower of Jesus and you call Parkview East home. Okay, so what we talked about the first couple of weeks was one of the traits, one of the first traits is that as a follower of Jesus, we are people who enjoy God's presence, right? We believe that in his presence, there is fullness of joy and is the deepest longing of our hearts and our souls to be in his presence, where at his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore, right? As a follower of Jesus, we long to be in his presence. And the wonderful story of the gospel is that he makes his presence real to us. We don't have to wait, right? We don't have to wait for the next life to participate and to be in his presence. He, he pours it out on us here in this life, right here and now. So we enjoy his presence. What we're talking about, what we started talking about last week and what we will continue talking about this week is that as a follower of Jesus, we just don't enjoy his presence, but we also live his story. If you remember, last week we looked at Luke 24. And just as a side note, I would really recommend if, if there are any messages that you go online and listen to, this series, I would really recommend be, be uh, the messages that you really um, tune into online. So everything's available online. Um, after it's preached, and you can go on there. So we don't want to pull any stops on folks. We want to be very real with what we're about. Okay, so last week, Luke 24, we talked about the necessity to live God's story. And really what we saw in Luke 24 was how Jesus um, teaches from Scripture himself. Right After he came back from the dead, if he rose from the dead, he appeared to these disciples and he opened up the sacred scriptures and he taught them from the Old Testament the things concerning himself. So what we tried to do last week was really say, listen, where life is concerned, there is this meta-narrative. There is this big story that is placed over all of life. And as we, as participants, if you are a member of you know, the living in this room this morning is evidence that you're alive, okay, then you can find meaning and in purpose um, in as much as you participate in that story. So, so really there's this overarching story in life and as we discover what the meaning and purpose is in life, apart from Jesus, we really are not going to be able to do that. There's a big story and what Jesus does is he invites us into that story where we are not the central characters, right? He is 
he is. So this morning we're going to continue the conversation and what does it mean to live God's story? To live God's story. I would invite you, if you have your Bibles, I hope you do, to open them to John chapter 8. We're going to be in John chapter 8 this morning. Um, if you do not have a Bible, your phone will suffice. Denny has, is stepping in for Craig this morning. He's got some Bibles. He will come around and put one in your lap. The words won't be on the screen. And so it will be really helpful for you to be looking at what God's Word says um, and not just taking my word for it. So John chapter 8 is where we are this morning. I'm going to read these words for us and then we will we'll pray. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go ahead and pray. Father God, Lord, as we examine these words, Father, Lord, I pray that your presence, that your spirit would be made known in this place and that he would do the wonderful work of revealing um, truth and your son in these words, Father, so that you may be glorified. We, we ask now, Lord, that you would take these words which we believe to be eternal and true and that you would write them on our hearts, God. We ask these scenes in your holy and precious name. Amen. So when I was growing up, I spent a lot of time at my grandparents' house, a small farm house outside of Dubuque uh, where my mother was raised. And I would love spending time with my grandma especially. She was a dear, dear woman, a very short woman, very dear woman. Love her dearly. And one of the things I noticed after going out there many years was she would have photo albums of the family throughout the years, just scattered throughout the house. And it would be a, a normal practice to pick up those, those photo albums and scan through the pictures. And I remember one day making the realization that as I looked and turned the pages, one page after another, I saw that many of the pictures, not all of them, but many of them had something in common. It really, it wasn't the presence of something, it was the absence of something that really made them similar. And, and what it was that they shared in common was that most of these pictures lacked any photographic evidence of my grandmother herself. You could not find a picture, I mean, there's maybe a few where it would have been, she would have had to do some serious manipulation to get herself out of this picture, right? There was maybe a few but many of them were cut even down the side because she did not like pictures of herself. She did not like pictures of herself. She didn't like seeing herself. Now, she was a beautiful woman. She had nothing to be afraid of or ashamed of, right? But it was just, I think, maybe more than anything, her Irish roots coming out of her, and she wanted nobody to see her face. She didn't want anything to do with it, right? 
And, and, taking a picture, now anybody who knows me knows I suffer from the same disease, right? I don't know if you noticed last week we came in and there was, uh, Liz was doing a video. She was video, kind of, she posted something on Facebook. Um, so she was taking video of, of the service. And I walked in and I thought to myself, well, wait a second. I have not mentally prepared myself to be videoed this morning. What's, what's the plan? Okay, what's going on? I, I do not like pictures of myself. And I don't know if it comes from some sort of insecurity or if it's just what I got from my grandmother, right? I don't like my picture taken and I definitely don't like to look at a picture of myself. This is a painful, painful process for me. Seeing, maybe you can relate. Maybe the age of social media and the age of the selfie, duck lips and all, is one that maybe you just don't appreciate, right? Maybe you can relate to me. Because the truth is, whether you can relate or not, seeing yourself as you truly are can sometimes be very, very difficult. This passage this morning serves us well because it forces us to ask a simple but incredibly important question. Am I who I think I am? Are you who you think you are? It's a question it forces us to ask. In John 8, we find Jesus engaging in a debate, as he so often does, with his adversaries. He is doing this in the very public arena of the temple. At this point in his ministry, Jesus is making some remarkable claims, to be sure, that are causing quite a stir amongst the religious elite. Earlier in chapter 8 and verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Some remarkable claims. He goes on to tell them throughout the chapter more specifically who he is, the unique relationship that Jesus has with the Father and what he came to do. We see just above our text in verse 30 what the result of this public debate was. Verse 30 says, he was saying these things, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. As Jesus was in the temple arguing and debating and teaching with other scholars, many who were in the crowds, who were on the, on the margins of the conversation, listened, and in verse 30 says, they believed in him. This is good news, right? These people believe in Jesus. The Pharisees are objecting to what he says, asking question after question, and, and Jesus' response, turn after turn, point after point, the effect is that many believed in him. It is these professing believers in verse 31 that Jesus now turns his attention to. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. Now you would think that Jesus would chalk this one up as a win, right? Celebrate those who put their trust and believe in him, who, who profess their belief in Jesus. That, that Jesus would say, all right, let's celebrate their belief. But instead, Jesus continues to press in, and the conversation we see gets complicated. It gets even more heated. So much so that by the end of chapter 8, we read, so they... The very people who we are told in verse 31 believe in him. Sorry, in verse 30 that they believe in him. These same people, now at the end of the chapter, we are told, they picked up stones to throw at him. 
But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So in the matter of just a few moments, the crowds go to believing in Jesus, believing in him to want to participate in the murder of him. Belief to murderous intentions. How can this be? How can the very people who believe Jesus want to see Jesus dead? Simply, their faith was shallow. Their faith was shallow. They had been watching him exchange blow after blow with the Pharisees. They had watched as he built his case, claim after claim, and they were impressed. They were impressed. They liked what they heard from Jesus. This man could be the Messiah. He could be the one that they had been waiting, had been longing for. They were impressed. Intellectually, Jesus was convincing. Emotionally, he was riveting. Spiritually, Jesus was inspiring. And these Jews found themselves caught up in the moment. They like what they hear. They like what they see. Though their belief may be sincere, this is a, a revolutionary a revolutionary concept. Though their faith may be sincere, it is not authentic. It's not real. It's a false faith. Though they may be professing him with their lips, by the end of the chapter, that profession becomes just a distant, fleeting memory. And it is possible today, it's possible even today, that we could be just like these people. Some of us even here today may be just like these people. The only difference is that our conversation, our conversation with Jesus hasn't gone on long enough. We haven't made it to the end of the chapter. There could be some among us today who suffer from the same shallow faith that these Jews did here in chapter 8. Folks, this passage really matters. What Jesus says, just even in these two verses, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciple. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Just these verses, folks, what he says really, really matters. It reveals to us that there are two different types of professing believers. Those who say, I believe in Jesus. Jesus categorically puts them into two groups of people. First, those who profess faith in Jesus but do not actually have faith in Jesus. And the second group is those who profess faith in Jesus and do have real faith. And the truth is, every one of us would say probably today that we all hate, detest hypocrisy. We hate it and, and we love authenticity. This passage matters because it forces us to examine our faith. Am I who I think I am? Am I who I think I am? Am I truly his disciple? What we see in the text is that Jesus lays out two indicators, two marks. As you hold the mirror of really what is God's word up to your face and you stare into it, there are two marks that you should see evident in your life which should allow you to say, I'm not a part of the first group. I'm not a false believer. I am a real, true disciple. Two marks. First mark is, we see right away in verse 31, 
If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Jesus says that the thing that separates those who have a fickle faith, which lacks depth and substance from those who have a serious faith, is how they relate the relationship they have to God's word itself. Last week we learned how Jesus opened the scriptures and showed that the disciples the things concerning himself, affirming the sacred text, namely the Old Testament, as relevant, useful, necessary for understanding the good news of the gospel. Here, he's putting his words on the exact same level, saying, if you abide in my word, you are truly a disciple. What are we to do with his word? He says we are to abide in it. Saw this a couple weeks ago as we looked at Jesus, said in John 15, he calls himself the vine and calls us to be a branch that abides, remains connected to him. Remaining in Jesus equals remaining in his word. True disciples hear his word, believe it, and hold fast to it. What does it look like to abide in his word? Listen. To it, linger in it, learn from it, and live it. This is what a true disciple does with God's word. A disciple is a learner, they are an apprentice, they are a follower. And as we abide in his teachings, every aspect of our life and our heart should be shaped by his word. The way we see ourselves formed, shaped, by his word, the way that we view others around us, formed, shaped by his word, the way we view the entire world should be formed and shaped by his word, the way that we view God himself should be primarily formed and shaped by his word. It's all too common today to see folks put their faith and their trust in Jesus, but their worldview doesn't change. How is that, how is that possible? Jesus says it's not. It's not possible. It may seem obvious for some of us today, this central foundational role of God's word in the life of God's people. Growth in godliness, however, is very different than how we consider growing in other spheres of our life. Take education, for example. Many of you are here today have pursued lengthy educational careers. Some of you would like for your entire career to be wrapped up in just learning and growing and, and pursuing education, going from undergrad to grad to you name it, one degree after the next, right? The way that we view academic educational growth is that you progress, right? You move on. You graduate from high school and then you progress to college. Then you graduate from undergrad and you go on to grad school, right? It's a progression. Same thing the way we view our professional career. You progress. You start in at an entry-level job and you take one step up the professional ladder. You move ahead, right? It's the way we think of financial progression in our life, right? Maybe you start off small with purchasing a home and then you get another home and then you build your portfolio and you grow financially. You move ahead, right? Nothing could be further from the truth when it comes to God's word. Oftentimes we take that exact same idea of growth, this idea of progression, moving beyond, and we apply it to our spiritual life as well. What Jesus says here is that spiritual growth doesn't look like progression in that sense. It looks like depth in his word. The, the picture that we get, like in Psalm 1, is of a tree planted firmly in soil by streams of water. 
right? The tree doesn't ever move. The roots get deeper and deeper and deeper in the soil. And the tree grows higher and higher and higher, right? We are called to abide, to hold fast to his word, not to progress from it. This week I was asked by a friend who is, you know, doing some growing in his life and at a particular position where, you know, he's kind of at a crossroads. Which direction is he going to go in? And he asked me the question, he said, Doug, do you have any good resources, any good books that could really inspire me and guide me and help me make good choices in life, you know, any, anything that you think could help? I said, well, that's an interesting question to ask. And I said kind of tongue in cheek, aside from the Bible, you know, I think that's, that's where you want to be. Are you first primarily planting your roots in the soil of God's word? Right? I mean, there's plenty of good books that are out there that you can add to that, that, you can, you, that can help you, right, along the way, whether it's practically applying God's word or, or how to study God's word. I mean, there's all different things that could be helpful resources. I said it kind of tongue-in-cheek, but the truth remains. I mean, there is no other book as God's people that, that can have any kind of influence, can have any kind, anything close to the influence that this book should have in our lives. And Jesus calls us to stay in it. The Bible, folks, is not elementary teaching. And I think especially those who may be in, in the academic world can oftentimes struggle with this, right? Because the book, what makes the book so awesome is that it doesn't change, right? What it does do is it changes you, all right? Second John verse 9, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Folks, do not look at this as a starting point. The Bible is the starting point, just as it is the ending point. And it's every point in between, right? Do not go ahead. Jesus says, if you are truly my disciple, you will stay, you will remain in my word. His word is where we dwell. The understanding of staying in his word for John especially, is linked to obedience. And I love the fact that he makes this connection. It isn't just a knowledge that, that we gain, but it's one that we give our life to. That it actually has sway and influence over the practical decisions that we make, the way we spend our money, the way we love our spouse, the way we raise our kids, what kind of job we have, what kind of career we pursue, where we live, how we dress. It has radical implications over every sphere of your life. And the measure of any disciple is the ability to hold to the master's teaching. We are his disciples when we listen to his word and we learn his ways. And as we sit as his, at his feet, as we learn from him, there will be words that will be difficult for us to hear. And we will be tempted to move ahead. Jesus says, don't stay there, there will be teachings that may not sit well with us. And we do not have, as God's people, the liberty to pick and choose the things that he says that we like, that we will follow, and then to pick the things that we don't like that we will leave behind. He does not give us the liberty. And trust me, as you open up this book, there will be words that will be hard to hear. There will be words that rub against the air that we breathe in our culture. There will be, but his word is timeless. His word is true, and every promise can say yes and amen to today, amen. today. 
Augustine's famous for saying, if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you do not like, it's not the gospel you believe, it's yourself. We trust Jesus, we believe him deeply and truly when we are vulnerable enough with him where one word could ruin our lives. One word spoken by Jesus could ruin our lives. That's when we trust him, when you give him that power, that influence in your life. If, you, if Jesus doesn't have enough say in your life to ruin your chances of happiness with one word, you don't trust Jesus. You trust yourself. He's still auditioning. Trusting Jesus is recognizing that your life is better in his hands than it is in your hands. Many of us know that all too well, right? When we recognize that I have done enough damage, I'm not very good at this. Jesus, I need you to take the lead. Even when I don't get it, when it doesn't make sense, when other people disagree with it, Jesus, I trust you. I trust you. If you are abiding in his word and it becomes the one true standard by which everything else is measured, then Jesus says, you are truly my disciples. Abide in his word. The second is really deeply connected, and we see it's essentially this idea of freedom, of freedom. Abiding in God's word, this is the second marker. First was abide in his word, the second is freedom. Abiding in God's word, we are told, allows us to know the truth, which ultimately sets us on the path to freedom. His teachings are not just some theoretical or philosophical ramblings or ideas that hang out there in the air. His teachings are meant to invade our life and change our life from the way that we make sense of the world outside of us. Sorry, the way we make the world, sense of the world inside of us, meaning and purpose, and the way that we make sense of the world that is outside of us, how we love and treat those around us. His teachings matter. The nature of the freedom we see in verse 36. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus talks about this idea of the difference between a slave and a son or daughter. A slave may come into the house, but the slave does not belong there, he says. But a child, a son, a daughter, they are at home and they belong in the house. They have a permanent place with the father. One that is not earned, but one that is given to them. So, so the freedom that characterizes true disciples is a freedom of confidence. It's an assurance that you belong to God. Where a slave may have to earn his way into the house a, and could be kicked out in a heartbeat, a child is at home. This is a different sort of freedom to be sure than what our culture is after and what many of us may find ourselves even caught up in pursuing. Culture says that true freedom is gaining the ability to do whatever we want. Jesus says, no, true freedom is being who you were created to be. That is what true freedom is. It's when you discover where you belong, that you are a son, that you are a daughter, that you belong. That's when you experience freedom from shame, freedom from sin, freedom from yourself, freedom from others. 
This is practical even here on Sundays. When you see others shouting praises to God, do you look at them in some sort of, as if they're doing some sort of foreign, some sort of other sort of worldly experience that you cannot identify or relate to? When you see brothers and sisters, others in the house, other family members, sons and daughters, praying, crying out to God, depending on Him for everything, can you relate to that? Or is that a foreign language? When you, when you see brothers and sisters opening God's Word, digging into it, learning from it, do you look on with suspicion or do you identify with them? Do you understand what they're doing? Are you who you think you are? you're not sure, Jesus is inviting you this morning to see yourself for who you really are. And how can you gain that freedom? How are we free? Again, verse 36 says, the Son is the one who sets you free. Jesus, the one who lived the perfectly honest life that you and I, nobody else in here can claim to have ever done. Jesus died under the full wrath of God for your failures for your sin, for your insecurities, for your guilt. All you can do is receive him with the empty, extended hands of faith. See, oftentimes, the reason why we can't receive him with those empty hands of faith is because our hands are clinging on to something else. Be it money, be it relationships, be it sex, be it power, be it education, be it ourself. When you do receive him, he gives himself to you fully. And he changes your heart into a heart which delights in him. A heart that finds its home with the Father. When I was in high school... Um, my, uh, the youngest of five kids and my two older brothers uh, ran cross country. Many of you have, are familiar with my running woes throughout my life. And I, I like the idea of being physical and fit, but it's hard work, you know. And running is honestly, no offense, but it's no fun. It just is not fun. And my older brothers were really good at long distance running. And so by the time I was a freshman in high school, Mr. Penning, he was the cross country coach. And um, he was ruthless in his, relentless in his pursuit of me just because of what he saw in my older brothers. I was same height I am now minus about 50 pounds. So if I were to stand sideways, you wouldn't have even known I was there. Um, didn't have much to offer the cross country team, right? He, he wanted me on it. So he pursued me. He convinced me. I gave a couple of my years over to his bondage of cross country. And then upon graduation, I was finally released from his tyrannical rule over my life. And I was set free. I was set free. Right? The reason cross country was so painful to me wasn't necessarily because I wasn't good at it. I, mean, I was average. I was decent. It wasn't because I wasn't any good at it. The reason why cross country was such a drudgery to me was because I did not enjoy it. Did not like it. I did not delight myself in it. Okay? I think the problem with many of us today... The reason so many of us can't read God's word is because we view God's word like I viewed cross-country. Bondage, right? That it places restrictions on our life. It takes away the liberty for us to do whatever we have. 
And it's because we don't love him. We, we have the heart of a slave. The fact that we hate what God loves and love what God hates shows us that, that we take after a different father. That we are not calling him. We may profess the belief with our lips, but our hearts are unchanged. Obedience to his world, his word, for those of us who don't call him, who may profess him with our lives, but don't follow him with our hearts, obedience to his word is just simply seen as shackles, putting us in slavery. Obeying God on things like sexual purity, on generosity, and on forgiveness. No thanks. That doesn't sound like fun. What Jesus wants to do is to give us back the heart of our son, of his son. Call us his own. Put us in the house and tell us we belong there. Not because of how we earned it, not because of what we did to achieve it, but because he, because of what he did to call us his son, to call us his daughter. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, has a great hymn that's maybe less known. He says in the final verse, Our pleasure in our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. It is our highest pleasure, no less than duty's call. I think the problem we see is that the, the obligation, the obedience to follow him and the pleasure that he invites us to, these two things are not at odds with each other. You know, I think of, um, I think it's common knowledge that many of the African-American spirituals from the days of slavery... A lot of times, now this is this point, I think some people can contest this, I think, but I think most of us have at least heard that those spirituals were really important for several reasons. I think one is because if you can imagine, um, none of us can to any degree, the amount of slavery that those brothers and sisters faced in the, in, for many years in this country was brutal. It was completely terrible. And so for them, these songs reminded them of a hope that was to come in the future. Right? That, that one day, may it not be in this life, but then the next life, there would be freedom. Right? And they continually sung those songs and passed those traditions on from one generation to the next to remind folks of, even in the midst of this difficult circumstance, of the persecution and of the suffering that no one should have to endure, that we have a hope to which God has called us that's very different. Right? That was one of the main reasons why those spirituals were useful. The other reason that many say that they were useful is because within the very lyrics of those spirituals, there was coded messages on how to get to freedom. There were words that suggested, like in songs like Wade in the Water or Swing Low, Sweet Chariot or uh, the Follow the Drinking Gourd is another po uh, popular one. That there was in those lyrics words that were telling other folks how to get to freedom. Folks, our path to freedom, likewise, is found the written word, through God's word. And the wonderful news about this story is you don't have to have any inside information. There's not a message in here that is coded. Jesus speaks 
plainly and clearly about himself. In fact, so clearly that they killed him for his claim. This, for the follower of Jesus, for a true disciple, for someone who professes belief with their lips and can back it up with their heart, this shows us where freedom is. And apart from the Son, unless the Son sets you free, folks, you ain't free. This book, as a result, is the book that as his disciples, we are called to abide in. Not just to know with our heart, with our head, have it in our heart, but also live it every step of the way. It's not easy. I'll give you three quick ways, practically speaking, that you can do this. And this is nothing revolutionary or new. And most of you who have spent any time around church will be able to rattle these three things off easily as well. First one is plan. Right? If you do not have a plan for staying in God's word, you probably won't stay in God's word. You have to plan. I think of, especially in our culture, with all of the, the increases, the developments in technology, the amount of resources and tools that are at our disposal. I mean, it would just be ridiculous for me to even give you multiple plans because there's millions of them, right? You have a phone. There's Bible reading plans you can do. I'll just share with you the one that I have found the most success for me. First of all, I'll tell you the last couple of years, what I found like over my journey with Jesus is that I have to mix it up. If I do the same thing, this is just my personality. If I do the same thing one day after the next, it just will get stale and it will get old. And God's word is anything but that. So I have to mix it up. The one I'm finding the most success right now, and this is just because I can remember it. I don't need to have my phone with me. I don't need to have a chart where I'm checking boxes or anything, but because I can remember it is is uh, the day of the week. Today is September 30th, okay? So what I would do is I would pick up the book of Psalms, open my Bible to the book of Psalms, and I would read chapter 30, Psalm 30. And then I would add 30 to that, and I would go and read Psalm 60. And then I would add 30 to that, and I would read Psalm 90. And I would do that until five times, and I would read five chapters of the Psalms every day. And I've been doing that for the last year, year and a half. And it has been awesome being in the Psalms. It's been awesome. I can do it any time of day because I always know the date. Well, with some friends around that can help me out. I know the date, right? It's super easy to remember. I know where I'm at and I just go from one Psalm to the next. It's awesome. Another part of my plan is oftentimes I can find myself get carried away in my thought. So I'll open God's word and I'll start to read. And next thing you know, I'm thinking about the Cubs peculiar situation right now, right? With the playoffs at stake. I'm thinking about different things. I'm thinking about the Hawkeye game. I'm thinking about work. I'm thinking about family. The pressures of the world come crashing in. I don't know if you, or even just like the tree that's in front of me. I'm thinking about that, right? It doesn't take much, right? So what I found a lot of success in is as I read, I do so out loud. I do it out loud. And I find that when I'm speaking the word and I'm reading it, that it's hard for my mind to be distracted from what's coming out of the words of my mouth. Right? So I read it out loud. Folks, what's your plan? There are millions of plans. We have given you a study. It's at the, at the desk on your way out. You can grab it. It's called the DNA, like a little DNA book. It gives you multiple guides throughout the week that you can open up and kind of guide you in God's word. But you should have a plan. You really should have a plan. And then the next P is simply practice. Remember that the trait here is called live God's story. And so another thing that I try to do, and this is a part of that plan, is at the end of your reading, you should always ask yourself, how can I obey this? How can I obey this? 
How can I do what God is telling me to do? Thinking real practically about ways you, you can obey what you just read. It's a necessary part of our Bible reading, and oftentimes it's the one that we set on the shelf, right? We just, rank, we just read to grow in knowledge. That's not, that's not the idea of abiding in his word. We want to grow in knowledge, but we also want to grow in obedience. Obey it. So are you practicing it? Do you have a plan and do you have a practice? And the third one um, is going to just be pray. For many of us, the reason why we may not get in God's word is not because we don't have time in the day. Right? We have time in the day for all sorts of other things. I don't buy the excuse that I'm really busy because there's never a time in your life when you're not. Well, I mean, maybe some people, but... For most of us, most people, like, you, you, you can just fill your life with activities, with jobs, with school, with family. I mean, you can fill it with everything else, but oftentimes the reason we don't prioritize God's word is because we don't long for it. We don't desire being in his word. And so my recommendation to you is that God, he's the giver of all things, Right? He says, ask and you will receive. He wants to give us the desires of our heart. Right? So my recommendation is that you spend time asking Jesus to increase your hunger for him in your life. Ask him to increase your delight in this book. In this book. And when your heart delights in him... A natural result will be you want to open up his book and see what he has to say. Right? If I tell my wife that I love you, but I don't ever want to spend time with you, okay, we got some problems, right? We would have some problems, some major problems. I, I can say it with my, with my mouth, but I, am I actually doing it? This is a totally different thing. Spend time with him, pray, ask that he would increase your hunger in your heart for his word. We go ahead and pray for our time this morning. Father God, Lord, we do pray. Lord, we are broken and we are sinful. We are fallen people. Lord, and even when it comes to this idea of abiding in your word, we are dependent on you. We don't stand a chance apart from you. Lord, and so I pray that, that you would fill the hearts in this room, Lord, with an increased desire to dig into your word. Lord, I pray that we would come up with a plan. I pray that we would put it into practice, Father. Lord, I pray when the desire begins to fade that we would call on you and you would provide for us, God. Lord, we believe this word to be eternal and true. Lord, I pray that you would help our faith not be like the faith of those Jews on that day. It was shallow. Lord, but I pray that you would strengthen our faith, that you would show us who we really are, Father. We love you and we ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen.